Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Honestly Speaking podcast. If you just join in with us for the first time, write a review, share with a friend, subscribe, help us grow. This week we have a longtime friend of the pod, Chris Wilson. He's an author, he's an artist, a film producer, an entrepreneur. There's nothing this guy doesn't do. But he joins us today to talk about his best-selling book, The Master Plan. He gets into what he's doing with his artwork. And lastly, we just kind of vibe out. So kick your feet up and enjoy. back what up everybody we're with chris wilson chris i feel like ever since this pod started we you were in the sort of early batch of names of guests yeah. why did it take so long why did it take so long farb do you do you know why like why why did it take so long for chris to, to join i think we were just like too cozy chris has gotten a lot of love and like referenced on the pod because we're all yeah. so close to friends and I just think it was almost just like too casual because we talk all the time. Um, but I think it's going to be really fun because uh, some of you who are listening might know about Chris. You know, he's the author of The Master Plan. He's an artist. He's an entrepreneur. You know, he rocks with the Breakout Crew. Um, but, you know, I think um, for anyone who doesn't know him, uh, I would almost say y'all living under a rock because uh, he's you know <laughs> jumping off the screen these days um chris you know uh, you and i there's so many things that we'd want to talk to and i think though the easiest way is maybe you can kick it off a little bit from just like you know where you grew up and as you know i love the story of the allegory of the cave and i feel like that gives a really great ethos to the reader of like you know what you stand for absolutely uh so i'm, I'm pumped to finally make it on the podcast uh so i'm psyched about that uh, I'm from Washington, D.C. I grew up there during the late 80s, early 90s. And in my book, I referenced the allegory of the cave because at the time there was a lot of gun violence when the crack epidemic was sweeping through uh, our community. They had brought the National Guard in. We had a homicide rate of almost 500 uh, murders uh, in one year. And so it was a lot of stuff going on. And my grandmother had this policy that, I mean, they were shooting every day in my neighborhood, but she said, like, when they start shooting, either get in the bathtub or just sleep on the floor. I wasn't really into TV growing up, and so uh, one day when they were shooting, I laid down on the floor and curled up in my blanket, and I read this illustrated uh, children's version of Plato's Allegory of the Cave. And it's really essentially uh, prisoners, mostly men, who are, uh, they spend their entire life inside of this cave, uh, handcuffed and shackled. And a fire behind them keeps them warm, but it casts uh, light in front of them. And so they make a game. They create this own uh, reality of identifying characters and stuff. They don't get to see colors. They don't get to see the real world ever. And one prisoner breaks out and discovers the beautiful world, vibrant colors. Uh, and then the guard uh, catches the prisoner and says, you know, you, you guys belong down there in the cave, not out here in the real world with us. And he begs the God, please don't put me back down there. It's so beautiful out here. And they put him back down there. And once he's back inside of the cave, his friends start to tease him. Oh, you tried to leave. You thought you was better. What's wrong with the cave? The cave is dope, right? Um, but then the story ends. But after reading that, when I would come outside into my neighborhood, I would like my friends would get killed over their tennis shoes or people would uh, like get killed over like their coats, any kind of thing. Um, and people in my neighborhood kept saying, this is our neighborhood, all we got is us, we got to stick together. And it's like, well, why are we shooting and killing each other? Like, why is this stuff happening? And what I start to um, correlate that story with is the way, uh, at least in my uh, community, how we were thinking about the world. And I never traveled anywhere, I never been anywhere. And so um, I didn't know about all these beautiful things that was in the world. And most people in my neighborhood never traveled and never know, knew anything outside of our community. And eventually, uh, you know, things happened uh, in my life. My mom, who was dating a D.C. police officer, uh, a crooked cop like uh, like Denzel in Training Day, real smooth, but just wasn't a good person. Um, and he attacked us 
when they um, knocked me out and sexually assaulted my mom, raped my mom in front of me, and then tried to kill us. Um, but we survived, and you know, he played down. He lost his job and started stalking our family. I lost a few family members uh, as a result. Uh, they killed my cousin. They shot my brother, and then they came after me. And at this point, I was carrying a gun, and I ended up taking a person's life, and I got sentenced to natural life in prison. I was 17 years old. And so that was the beginning of sort of my journey, my story, where um, after a year of being depressed in prison, I decided that um, after meeting uh, someone, Stephen Everett, who became my mentor. Big Steve. Yeah, I I decided my life was redeemable, and I wanted to prove it to myself and to the the world. And so I wrote up this master plan of like education, therapy. And, you know, I was young. At this point, I was 19. So it's some silly shit that's on on there that's like, I wanted some Prada shades and I wanted to like do some stupid stuff. But, you know, I worked really hard and I spent almost half my life in prison and I embraced education. I went to college, which really opened my mind up to the world. Uh, But I remember this story and I would talk about it sometimes in therapy of young men that was just like, it's my hood, it's my block. And it's like, dude, like it's, it's this world out here that you just need to be exposed to. And it's beautiful. If only you could see it. And so it's something, that story is something that I always think about everywhere I go, especially with the work that I do. And so I, I did 16 and a half years in prison. Um, I've been home now for a little over nine years. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, there's so much to the story and uh, honestly, everyone just, if you don't know, just go buy the book master plan or do the audio book. Chris, uh, is the narrator, which is an amazing way to listen to it as well. But I think, I mean, there's so many pieces to that. But like right now, for instance, you you know, all of you listening can't see, but Chris, he'll talk a little bit about being an entrepreneur. But today, probably the thing he does the most is art. And if you follow him on Instagram, Chris Wilson Baltimore, you'll see all the artwork he's doing. And you'll see this trend that his artwork is incredibly colorful. And Chris, like, that's like, I mean, you, you basically just spoke to it in the story, but you've been thinking about that. But can you give us just even a bit yeah. more to that? Because I know it's even more detailed than you just said. Yeah. So there's, there's a reason behind the, the vibrant color. So when I was away, the prison had all these crazy, uh, bizarre rules, but primary colors were, were forbidden. Anything, any color, uh, uh, it could be a pillowcase or anything. So it was just spice tan, forest green, uh, and, and then maybe like a denim, like for the denim jeans, but like everything else, you get caught with like something like, you know, blue or red or something like that, and you're going on lockup. And so for most of my life, I was deprived of these vi- these uh, vibrant colors. And so uh, once out of prison and, you know, seeing the blue sky, like I didn't get a chance to look at the sky. It was just a brick wall out of my window for most of my life. Uh, unless I was in the rec yard. And so every chance I got, uh, once I was free, I just, I wanted colorful stuff. I wanted, you know, a- after painting and, and studying color theory, like colors evoke certain emotions and make you feel a certain kind of way. So as much as possible, I try to uh, make things colorful. That's beautiful. It's wild. It's like, Chris, you do so much. It's like, I don't even know where to start. I think but while you're speaking though, my mind is going towards... Um, the movie that you directed, The Box. Yes. And I know that you've had some recent success with that. And I'm wondering if you can speak to it. It's very powerful, powerful, powerful film. Yeah. Um, it stuck with me. I mean, I watched it. A, it's a short one. So I watched it a couple times over when I when you all first let me check it out. But it was just like wrenching. Yeah. Jarring. I could speak to that. Um, I was the executive producer and and, oh, okay. and, and financed the film. Shao and Go and uh, James Byrne were the directors. Um, That's right. Two directors, and the 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 short film was inspired from a chapter from my book, which is titled uh, "Solitary." And I spent not as long as them, but I spent 117 days in solitary confinement, and I I kind of went crazy uh, uh, while I was in there and. I remember sharing that chapter with uh, Shao, who's uh, one of the directors, and him just being upset about it. And we started thinking about other people uh, that were subjected uh, to solitary confinement, and we wanted to do a story and then create a short film 
to be able to be used as a tool to advocate against solitary confinement. Because in, even now today, like any given day, there's 80 to 90,000 men, women, and children that's subjected to solitary confinement. So that's what we wanted to do. So really cool film. Um, and it's, it's, it's doing its thing right now. Chris, you know, I, I have so many questions. I, I even want to dive deeper on the film stuff. But you talk a lot about like positive delusion, which is one of the yeah. ways that you even got yourself to, you know, have this chance. Because at the time, no one had that had been a juvenile lifer in the state of Maryland had ever been released. So right. you, there was no reason for you to even think you would ever be able to get out. And so much of that mentality has translated into so many of the successes you have when in the face of so many odds. Can you just talk a little bit about how that manifested? Yeah, I, re I remember uh, I was actually in solitary confinement at this point, and I read some part of a book. I think it was John McCain's book when he was uh, locked up in Hanoi Hilton in the, during the Vietnam War. And the guy next door to them, would they were there for years too, by the way, but like the guy next door would tell them uh, every couple of weeks, hey, 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 y'all, um, I, I figured it out. We'll be home by December, by Christmas. We all going home. And like, they knew they wasn't going home, but like they, it gave them hope. It's like, if I just pretend that I'm going home in December, it allows us to like get through like the hardships and they were being like straight up tortured. Um, and I thought it was like a little funny and weird, but here I was with, without a release date and I needed some type of hope so that I could get up in the morning so that I wouldn't like, you know, wrap a sheet around my neck. And so at a certain point when I wrote up my master plan, I said, I really have to delude and believe that I'm going to be home one day, even though I don't have a release date, even though everyone in the prison is like, dude, like, that's crazy. How you feel? You never going home. And I had to just believe it. And I said, well, if I am going home, I got to figure out what I have to do in here so that I'm ready to be successful when I get out. And for the whole time, people thought I was crazy. And it took a long time. There was a lot of self-doubts in like days where I was like, is this is this the right thing? Uh, am I working towards the right thing? Because like people would knock on my door, but like alcohol and it's like, get your cup. And I'm like, nah, I got this plan. I'm going home. And they're like, dude, you're not going home. And so I call it a positive delusion because, uh, you know, I deluded myself. I was sort of like lying to myself, but I look at it as, you know, I was choosing to believe in something that other people just didn't believe in. And it, and it, it panned out. <laughs> so Chris, um, positive delusion you even said that you you say i went a little crazy quote yeah i did and i'm just curious as someone who's been to the brink and back mentally emotionally spiritually like a, been to a point where you don't know if you're coming back mentally right. right i want you to maybe share with our listeners any advice any guidance for anyone who's feeling like they might be at that point yeah. right now or where do they go from there to try to recenter themselves? Absolutely. I mean, when I was in that space, I even write about cutting up. So I was cutting myself like self-mutilation to try to remind myself that I was alive just because it, it was so painful, hallucinating and just I, I went off into um, a dark space um, that damaged me. But once uh, I was able to get access to therapy, it also took me a long time to open up in therapy as a young man, 180 pounds in a maximum security prison. And I'm in a group setting and I got all, the, all, all these wounds inside of me. Uh, and so eventually I just opened up and I started talking in therapy about what I went through, what it felt like. And I was worried too, because I was like, I don't want people to think I'm soft or, or something's wrong with me. But once I started opening up about my experience and like my cutting and like my depression, people started going around the room. Other men, they started opening up and talking about it. And what I realized that we all had been through almost the same thing and we all um, was experiencing trauma, but like that allowed us to grow. And so once we understood that we were all on the same page, we started talking about ways how we could uh, cope and um uh, and, and therapy and started learning stuff. And over the years, we became uh, brothers. And, uh, you know, there's a stigma, especially for black men uh, going to therapy. You know, we, we, you know, oftentimes say, yeah, we can handle it, figure it out, ain't nothing wrong with me. But I look at it um, as a strength uh, therapy. And I still go to therapy once a week. And 
you know, it helps me uh, help myself and understand the world better. So I encourage people that uh, may be going through challenges. I mean, just try it out. It's been critical to my life. Sure. Were, were those kinds of resources like therapy, were they hard to get in prison? Did yeah. Did you have to like, you know, fight for those? Well, I was in a unique prison. I mean, it was unique in the sense that you had to go to therapy. You had to go to school if you was inside of this prison. That's very rare in America. Yeah. Um, but at, but I, what I would recommend is that even if you don't have therapy uh, in your um, in your prison or in your life, you know, there are also people who um, I felt are beneficial like to talk to mentors, finding mentors, people can help you um, navigate certain situations. Like that's a good start too. But um, yeah, there's not a lot of therapy in prison. Right. In lieu of actual therapy. I mean, you know, in like TV shows and movies, this is caricature to I don't even know what ends. But even in prison, in most in any place, you can find community in some way. Right. When you first got to prison, like how you obviously said you were pretty much depressed, obviously, understandably, the first year. But when you did started to find community and grounding, was it more like other folks from like D.C. or like how did you find that? Uh, you know, what was a common thread yeah. for for it, those folks? It was it was it was so hard for me. And even when I, I first started approaching, so I was looking for folks that around the prison that were just going to school and minding their business and doing the right things. I was like, I need to figure out how they're able to do this because you know it's fights and the stabbings. Like, how are they right. avoiding all this stuff? And so I started with just talking to them. And then, you know, they were giving me advice of, you know, you put yourself in situations where stuff could happen. And just I started learning a lot of wisdom from the older folks. But I still didn't talk in therapy. I would go to therapy and I would listen, but I wouldn't talk because it was so painful to talk about things that I've been through. And it's just, you know, after after a while, I felt like um, that it just wasn't healthy to keep all that stuff bottled up. So I just opened up one day and group, you know, my voice was cracking. I think I cried a little bit. Yeah. Um, but mm-hmm. but that that vulnerability uh, allowed uh, uh, all the rest of the young men in the group. They just started opening up too, and it was whole like horrible stuff. Like the guy beside me that went, he was like, "I'm in for murder." Um, I shot this guy who um, shot my friend, and then I just found out two weeks ago. Uh, you know, they found my mom in a grocery store, and they shot her and killed her. And like he was he was in group hurting for like two weeks, and like wouldn't even talk about it. But like he had the courage to open up. And talk about that um, experience, and everyone started opening up. And that's one of the things I also learned too about in therapy was that you know hurt people hurt people. And so now with the work I do, I try to be more proactive and try to help people um, before they get to that space. Chris, something that I've I've always admired about you, and that has taught me so much, because you know I'm I'm kind of quiet. I'd be able to just sitting back and observing people, different people around me, especially like new people, like when we first met. Um, The hardship, of course, is a part of your journey, like it is a part of many people's journey, right? So it's like, I think it is important to, you know, speak on that, help people, uh, you know, with your story. But one thing that I still lean into that I learned from you is how much you embrace life and how unapologetic you are about living and being big yeah. and bright, you know? And that's something I had never really seen for real until yeah. I met you. Yeah. I've seen it in theory. Yeah. I've seen it in theory, heard it in theory, but in terms of in practice, yeah. you were the first person to really show me that. And I, I still live differently yeah. because I've met you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> it's one of those things of, again, spending half of your life almost like on a different planet, different rules, different things going on. And I used to dream about living a good life uh, every night. I used to cry. I mean, it it just, you have no idea. Like, I mean, I wake up now and sometimes I set my alarm clock just to watch the sunrise. And especially living in Baltimore with so much, so much trauma, so much gun violence, we lose, unfortunately, we lose people all the time. And so I know that life is short. I had attempts against my life since I've been home and you know, living in Baltimore, and I just want to enjoy it. I want to help other people enjoy it. And so, uh, someone actually messaged me yesterday who just finished my book, and I gave it to her a year ago. But she says, "You know what? I, I, I apologize for taking a long time reading this book, but um, 
you know, I cried at some parts. And she said, and she ended her message, said, you know, when I see you on Instagram and you're smiling, she said, your smile means something different now. She was like, I know why you like doing all this stuff. I know why you live in and you're like, you deserve it. And I just, I just want to enjoy it. I'm not going to be here forever. Thanks. And I feel like everyone can live their life like that. They can. The Absolutely. Right it's a, it's a matter of um, your mind state is what yeah. it is. Right. You know, I think a lot of people do get caught up in the monotony in the conformity um, and not looking around to just see how, what a beautiful art piece we live within. Right. Yes. That we yes. can enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You you mentioned, Chris, a lot of hesitation around dudes participating in therapy in prison. Yeah. And you mentioned that's even the case outside of prison in the neighborhoods or in the, from the neighborhood you came from or a lot of uh, northern neighborhoods across the country. You know, people always like, oh, why, why, why do black men specifically, why are they hesitant around therapy? Why don't they just open up more? Can't they just simply open up more? Like, not that, not that you're saying like that, or we're saying like that right. here, but that's often a, a larger narrative. But once you get more into under the layer of things and get to under a, sort of a certain layer of complexity, from you know, I've never been to prison, but but coming from neighborhoods, a lot of family. I'm not from a you know a segregated neighborhood where my dad is, and a lot of my cousins are, and stuff like that. But from what I understand, prison is just sort of the rules of the street times ten. Yeah. And the weak therapy is more like sharing feelings and emotion. You know, maybe that's an oversimplification, but does that not then subject you to violence? Does that not then sort of, you know, show a certain weakness that you 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 cannot show in certain contexts for safety purposes? Like, is that like the larger, like countervailing force against black men showing their emotions and letting their guards down in a in a therapy session? Yes, I mean it's a thing. It- yeah, and, and you think back to like young black men in particular neighborhoods, uh, let's say like Baltimore, Chicago, or you know South Central, and growing up in these environments, and you know, and also growing up usually like with your father's not being in the house, or or just like you know, young people have to. It's a defense mechanism to have like this macho, tough. You know, a lot of people in my neighborhood, we walked around and we was looking all angry. And it's really, a, you know, a defense mechanism. We want anybody to bother us. And then we thought, you know, we did, most of us grew up not knowing, like, what it was to be a real man. And we thought that expressing our emotions and talking about them was what, what women did. Right, right. And, and right. that wasn't the case. And so I had to, I didn't learn that until I was in prison. It was like, well, you know, I cried when I started talking about stuff I've been through and my, me and my mom being attacked. And I was a mama's boy, you know, to watch my mom be attacked. And I was telling the, the guys in the group, I said, there was a gun in the house close by. I knew where it was at. And I could have got up and grabbed that gun and shot. shot. I just I just that wasn't who I was. And just opening up in, in group, you know, and as I got older, being able to talk about stuff like this don't make you soft. Right. Like it makes you human. And a lot of folks in my group, at least in prison, we learn how to be men. But we had to go through like a a lot of years of therapy to do it. But most people in the community, they think like, man, I'll figure it out. Oh, I got to be tough. I got to be strong for my family or whatever. It's like, no, you got some stuff bottled up that you need to work out. And we and we as a community, we need to make sure that people know like it is cool to work on yourself and better yourself and sit down in therapy. Right. And so that's that's something that I try to I, I try to advocate for um, even today, for people just sitting down and getting it off their chest. Do you think that that do you think the like the, the larger danger of why, uh, like you said, the machismo, you know, yeah. even the misogyny yeah. that black men use in order to negotiate violence, like that that larger danger? Do you think that's underplayed? I mean, obviously, it's like mental health awareness yeah. month. It's like every month now, and everybody in its in its mainstream. You know, not as much as it should be, but it's much more open society wise. But do you think it's like, do you think that's not like actually taken serious or taken into account, like the danger yeah. that, you know, black men and women face in these neighborhoods and why they uh, don't want to go to therapy or why they are repressed emotionally in certain ways? I, I mean, I, I agree with you 100 percent. And I, I used to do gang mediation, especially when I, I came home from prison and moved to Baltimore. And there would be like offline conversations with the OGs in the neighborhood. And I would I would get upset with folks in the neighborhood, the OGs, 
uh, respectfully, but I'll just be like, listen, you, you can't just sit by and let like these young people like do stuff and not check them. Like they look up to you and you see what's happening. You know where they'll end up. And we got to sit down and we got to keep them from going into prison. We got to keep them from experiencing all these traumatic events. And so there's a responsibility of like the older people in our communities too, like to step up. We can't just be like, well, you know, that's just how they'll learn the hard way. No, we got to take care of us. I mean, Chris, it's, it's interesting though, because when you came home, you were doing such intense, like <laughs> on the ground work, right? The gang remediation, you were create, you were doing, you know, subcontracting work, furniture work, where you were hiring all sorts of folks returning home. Uh, and, you know, you help them get jobs and create their own things. And now you're kind of, you're, you're not on the ground, but I want, in a way, you're, you're coming at it like a different approach, but it seems to be a more scalable approach, which is like, you know, you want to talk about just like from like the books to the tablets to just like all, all the different ways that you're thinking about it now, because it's been such a, a prog- like almost an accidental progression. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's very serendipitous. Yeah, so I, initially when I got out of uh, prison, I got. I went to business school, so I was going to University of Baltimore. I was working throughout uh, during the day as a workforce uh, director, gang mediator, community organizer, and I was frustrated because in Baltimore there were so many people, particularly people of color, who couldn't get jobs. I'm talking about. I would see hundreds of people a month, and I was told that uh, success. If I could place 50% of these hundreds of people in the jobs, then I'm considered a successful program. And I said, well, what about the other 50%? He says, don't worry about them. I said, well, I have to see them every day at the grocery store, walking down the street. And I was like, I got to do something. And so that's when I started you know, the furniture business, uh, reupholstering furniture and making furniture. And then I started a construction company uh, doing contracting work. And when work slowed up, we would do any kind of work, moving job, cat stuck in the tree, like whatever, we would show up, you know, we'd send your invoice after. But what really started to beat me up was that every two months I would have to fire someone or hire someone. I was losing uh, employees to gun violence. I was watching so much happen. And I used to joke and say, uh, uh, running the business, I feel like we are the the music band that was on the Titanic while I was sinking. Like they didn't get in the lifeboats, they just playing music, they keeping you comfortable. And I just started to feel like, am I really making a difference uh, in people's lives and you know having 13 to 20 people work for me, I wanted to to be more impactful uh, on a, on a uh, cast a wider net. And so that's when I decided um, to move in a different direction. And so I still help people, but like I started a, a foundation now, Chris Wilson Foundation, and my plan going forward is to provide a scholarships fund. I started a Chris Wilson scholarship fund at University of Baltimore. I support uh, artists. I fund the art program in the prison that I grew up in. Uh, I want to do uh, financial literacy courses for people in the community. So I want to I want to support um, in that kind of way. And I'm, I'm 42 right now and I put my work in. I put a lot of work in and I don't want to be out two o'clock in the morning arguing with some young guy about why I got to take taxes out of his check. <laughs> I just don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> Risking my life. <laughs> we'll talk about like how many books now are in prisons, how, how many you're trying to get. And then, and then like this tablet program and like why that's so important, because you, you created a whole class to this end. So so my book went to publication in 2019. Uh, I, I set a goal of getting my book into every prison in America. So there's 3000 prisons. I've raised over uh, $270,000 so far to pay for books, to get them into prisons. Uh, and uh, I don't know, uh, struggling schools uh, around the, around the country. A- after that, I started. Uh, I invested and I started working in this prison education tablet company uh, that provides like TED talks and allows people uh, to get their high school diplomas or study for CDLs. All of these uh, services that are on the tablets, uh, and and it's it's free of cost. Like the uh, the incarcerated people don't pay for it. And so I started doing this work and I always had this idea of like, what if I can create this course uh, where people can create their own master plan? You know, over the years, I've learned a, a lot of uh, things about being successful and surrounding yourself with positive people, 
creating your own personal board of advisors, writing stuff down and, and lifelong learning. And so I was able to create this, this course, a 10 unit course of like videos. I partnered, I paid a software company to create like some curriculum and some surveys and some quizzes. Uh, I, I weave my art all throughout it. Uh, and so now we're beta testing in Rikers Island. We started with 520 uh, men and women uh, on the island. And they liked it so much. I was getting hundreds of messages from people uh, incarcerated every day that Rikers Island reached out and said, we want the whole island to take it now. So now it's 5,700 people are going to take it. Yes. Yeah. University of Alabama is writing a study. They have a team of, of um, people who are going to do uh, a research paper because I want some science behind it. I want to know who's taking it, how are they progressing, what do they do after they graduate. And then we're rolling out in 19 different states uh, after the beta testing. And so I just went to Rikers Island last week just to talk to the people who graduated. And so it was a really good feeling to see, uh, to hear people saying, Yo, I'm the next Chris Wilson. Like, I'm going to do it way better than you watch when I get out. And so it's just like, this made me tear up. (laughs) Chris. That's so beautiful. (laughs) To take it in a little bit of a a downer, give a little bit of of your feedback on how you felt going into Rikers Island, having never been there. Oh, my God, man. Yeah, I mean, I was messed up for a couple of days. And I I would say, and, and, and I think like all over the country from when I hear because of COVID, Folks have been stuck wherever they are. And so I was going into housing units on Rikers where it just it's a building or, or just a big room, but like 30 people, they don't get to leave for anything. Um, minimum contact with the outside world, uh, the conditions. I mean, every almost every housing unit I went on, they were calling the code where like people were coming in and like, you know, taking people to lock up. All this stuff was going on. And I, I just felt really sad. And I, I questioned, I said, I don't know if I would have been able to do my time under these conditions. But, you know, and so it was, it was really sad about it. And I noticed there seemed to be a lot of people that had mental health challenges and didn't have like the proper access to stuff. I was talking to some people who was just like, they just was out there and just, and I was, I just felt bad about it. Um, so, I, you know. My hat goes off to people that, that survive it there. And it's a lot of people there. So it's like, you know, and, and you know, you do a lot of advocacy and stuff. It's like, there's so many levels to it, right? It's like, how do we shut down some of these like, you know, terrible places? But at the same time, I think what I appreciate about your work too is there's, <laughs> at, so, at every point in your life, many people could have been like, why keep going? Or this is right. too much, or I'm just going to spiral out. And all of us have yeah. our moments of spiraling out. It doesn't mean you didn't. It doesn't mean people with less should feel bad about them spiraling out. But you consistently have found ways to create positives amidst that, yeah. you know, that titanic feeling or all these other things. And I, I guess that's what I love about the lessons. It's just it's so much perseverance of like you might go into Rikers and you see the terrible things, but then you've got the other guy saying, I'm going to be the next Chris Wilson. Right. Yeah. So it's like it's you're 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 creating all that you can in this like imperfect world. And I think something that like, I've told this story to a lot of people, but like me and Chris become like really close friends over the years. And he used to come up uh, to New York uh, and stay with like me and my friends all the time when he was first getting his like artistry, like going and all these other things, his book deal. And then he used to bring up some of the guys who worked in his crew. And these guys had never, let alone leaving Baltimore, they'd never left like West Baltimore. They didn't even cross. Yeah, exactly. And, and next thing you know, they're up in New York city and then we're having conversations on all these other things. And I just think it's been this really amazing way of like how you've been able to spread your ethos and the way you think uh, to so many people, regardless of where they come from, how much privilege they have. Because there's so many lessons for all of us, right? Like the work you do, yes, is your main dedication is for those behind the fence and for those who've experienced trauma, but it has the ability to impact everyone. And I think that's really powerful. And to that end, I love that you were telling me it's it's potentially this curriculum is going to be in colleges. Like why shouldn't like our most promising or not most promising, but just our youth who are going through educational fields also get this, right? Like. Yeah. This should be a holistic thing. It shouldn't be just because you've had trauma, you should have this. Like we 
should all be thinking about, you know, this way of looking at life. So, yeah, I just did a big poll yesterday about that. Yeah, a big call yesterday of making it a, a part of accredited course for uh, community colleges because I wanted to be affordable. Um, and I just raised uh, a, a nice chunk of money for the 2.0 version because I think about like the course, I want, you know, uh, people on the outside world, you know, law students, social workers to be able to understand what it's like behind the fence or just, you know, creating your own master plan, doing something different with your life and being motivated um, uh, by that. And so um, I'm just excited to see what I can do to contribute to help people. You know, also, especially uh, juvenile um, detention centers, I'm talking to some folks in New Jersey and I want to keep people from going to prison. And so I want to figure out ways how I can support and, and help um, our young people before they go in. And so if the course uh, can do that, that would be, you know, be awesome. And so I'm excited about it. Absolutely. Um, Yo, Chris, tell everyone a little bit about uh, the, the, the PayPal story and, and the, uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the entry you're getting into this PayPal mafia book. Yeah, <laughs> it's so crazy. Every time I think about it, like I, I feel strange even talking about it because people are like, what? <laughs> so I have this relationship with PayPal. They published an article. They were on the cover of Forbes magazine, I think in 2007. I was locked up. And I had a subscription uh, to Forbes. And so they wanted covers, PayPal Mafia. And the gist is that all of the PayPal crew, they uh, sat on each other's boards. They worked together to help each other raise money and stuff. And so I Xeroxed this cover. And then I was doing entrepreneurial workshops in the prison. And I started teaching this course and talking about the power of having the right connections and, and building and supporting each other and sitting on each other's boards. And I was like, you see what they did? They came from nothing. This is what we got to do. This is my plan when I get out, right? And so I mentioned this years later at some talk somewhere, and it was some PayPal folks in the audience, and it got back to uh, Peter Thiel and Elon Musk. And then all of a sudden, um, you connected me actually with a, um, a person who ended up being uh, the writer for the book. And then they just reached out to me, and I started doing a series of interviews and then we just finished up and they just sent me the, the chapter, the last, the epilogue, the last uh, chapter of the book is about my story uh, in prison wow. and my master plan, um, which is dope. And then I got messages from Elon and the crew was like, send us pictures of all available art and prices. Yes. And, you know, we want you to keynote at our IPO celebration. And so um, the book goes, the PayPal book goes to publication uh, next February and I'm in it. Um, and it's, it's so crazy just to think about this manifestation and, and, and all of them want to meet me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's some wild manifestation. <laughs> Magic. Yeah. So it's Chris, great. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm curious about something. It's something that, that we talk about like as friends, but I think that sometimes, you know, when people kind of hear about all that you're doing and like, you know, people forget that you are, and we are sensual beings. And I'm curious after, you know, being locked up for 16 years, locked down um, as a teenager and on, uh, as a man, you know, who loves women, happens to be attracted to women, <laughs> how do you view sensuality, intimacy, affection? Um, how do you view it differently than someone who maybe didn't go through that experience? Yeah, that's a good question. Why did I? Why did I like? I knew you was going to ask me something like this. <laughs> <laughs> it was coming. I was just waiting. Yeah. <laughs> so, so to be honest with you, I just, I just did this little brainstorming session um, the other day, and like the, almost like how uh, Maslow's hierarchy uh, of needs and this triangle. And I was writing on my master plan of how when I was in prison, I would work on this and I would plan to do this and I would educate myself and I would go to therapy. But there's some missing blocks in the pyramid. And when I explained to folks that I mentoring, I said those missing blocks were things that I knew I needed that I couldn't really provide for myself. And it was uh, relationships. So and just like intimacy and, and those things, because I went to prison at 17. How much dating and relation like intimacy was I able to experience? A little bit. Right. But like not enough. So I knew that I would be deficient uh, coming home from prison. And so I made a conscious choice when I first came home from prison was just, I'm going to continue to go to therapy. And I got into one or two like uh, 
serious relationships, but I said, I'm not going to get serious until I, I build up like my, my relationship skills. And so I've been single for a while. Uh, I do have a plan uh, to settle down at a certain point, but like right now I'm just, I'm just focusing on building like my, my career and, and staying focused, but I do want it, but I just need to be ready for it. Of course. Even though I'm 40, like relationship wise, or intimacy wise, I'm probably like, I don't know, what did you say, uh, father, um, like 25, 30? <laughs> you're, you're like in your mid 20s. Yeah. Mid-20s. yeah. Well, yeah. I think yeah, that's. You're so- you're sowing your master plan oats. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was a beautiful notion, right? Of yeah. like you feeling, or I guess knowing within yourself, knowing yourself, first of all, to know that um, you use the word deficient, but you know, I don't know if you're deficient, but I know what you yeah. mean. Like when, yeah. when you're ready and you're whole and you have what you feel like you want to be able to give a woman emotionally, yeah. spiritually, mentally, like that's when you know that you're ready, you know? But I think it's like very um, actually mature of you, probably a little more mature than a (laughs) mid 20 year old to, you know, not not want to just jump into something serious knowing that you're not ready. Right. And then I make sure that I'm honest. At the end of the day, people, you you could like it or hate it, but like, I don't lie to people. Mm -hmm. I'll tell someone, if I meet someone, it's like, yeah, I want to date and say, Here's my setup. Here's the deal. And usually people say, oh, now I'm looking to get married and have kids right now. Sure. And like my talks, my, my clock's ticking. And I'm just like, well, you know. Radical honesty. And then other times it's just like, you, you told me what it is and I like spending time with you. And so. Yeah. I think it's interesting. Like I'm, as I practice something similar just recently of just being single, radical honesty. And you realize like, you know, some people, some women jump ship. Yeah. Some are down for the ride, but it's like it's not really on us to to tell anyone what what they want or what they deserve. Like if it's not your cup of tea, like what wave I'm right. on, you know, then then that's awesome. And we can experience each other in other ways or at certain times. But I think it's it's a beautiful mindset to have, you know. Yeah, I agree. Chris, we were talking about this like maybe like a few months ago, but I was saying that uh women, particularly at least white women I've seen will like fetishize like activists and like yeah. people in the space and like straight up like yeah. throw themselves at like black men in the space. Do you agree with that statement? Hell yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> <laughs> what I tell y'all, when we were talking about that, I was like, well, you know who we should have on on this conversation? Chris. <laughs> it's a real thing. And Yo. I'm not saying like, you know. Ed didn't believe us. Yeah. It, it's it's a real thing. I did not believe Leon, you. I think Leon I was. Oh, oh, it was Leon. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a real thing, and like to be straight up. I mean, even though like we be cool, and like like it it pissed me off sometimes. I met some really um, like awesome white women in my life who have like just like, but you ain't meeting my parents, so like it's not this. It, it can't. We can't get to like this point. But it's like I am some type of object of like. You know, they brag about me to like their friends and like, you know, like, you know, all this, this stuff. It's just weird. And it makes me feel weird. And it's like, it's almost like, yeah, fetishizing. That's what it is. But it's not nothing like genuine and like tangible or, or whatever. And I have a chip on my shoulder about it. But not everyone is like that. But it's a thing now. Of course. It's a thing. Yeah. yeah. I don't think people talk about it or acknowledge it a lot. I, you know, I haven't really heard anyone except us kind of speak on this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah me either, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I definitely see it as well, you know. Um, I don't know. It's deep. It's complex, right? There's so many layers there. <laughs> like, you're yeah. ornamental. You're, you're a totem of their, their social justice levels, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I'm at master level. I got Chris Wilson over here. Da, da, da. Yeah. I'll pull him out. I'll bring him to your dinner t- dinner party. Exactly. My yeah. folks ain't gonna be there, but I'll bring him to your dinner yeah. party and I'll let him. I'll have him do his 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 song and dance. You know. Yeah. But you know, I, not- I get invited all the time. The same thing, and I think about that every time, Eddie. Like when it's like, and even some of my folks in my inner circle, it's like, why are they really inviting you over there? Like, what this really about? And right. I, I know what it's about, but. You know, I, I see the value sometimes of getting in the room with certain people. Like I have an empire that I need right. to build and I need to make connections. But deep down inside, I'm like, I know why I'm really here. Word. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they they definitely mm. using you. Not all of them. But it, yeah. if you know going in, they're going to use you. Then you make sure you get something out of it, too. Fuck amen. it. Yeah, it amen. could be transactional. Yeah. That's all right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it's gonna be all great. Right, Eddie. <laughs> go- nah, for real. It ain't gonna be like this is this is the game. This is what it is. You know, yeah. it ain't gonna be 
You ain't going to like, you know, willingly degrade yourself, but you know what you're willing to take, but you better get out something out of it too. You know how to do yeah. that. So, yeah. but yeah, like Chris, do you, do you, and I worry about this with Jim too. I worry yeah. about this with Jim. Do you ever worry about being held up as an unrealistic standard to other folks getting out of jail as, as being, you know, maybe cause both of y'all are literally extraordinary, like one out of a million. And you know, you you all are are are, are not the rule. Uh, the rule is is the mediocre black dude or black woman that reoffends. You know, they're the rule. Is do you worry about being held up as a standard and and being used as justification to say, oh, for all those reoffenders, you didn't do enough. You know what I mean? We got Chris over here. You just gotta be like Chris. Yeah. You know, this more of like, you know, uh, an icon of like moderate Dems or, or moderate liberals. You know, to 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 then justify not helping all those folks who just you yeah. know, who, who are not going to be best-selling authors. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a good thing to bring up. And it's something that comes up all the time. Um, but first, uh, I got to give a shout out to Jim because I met Jim years before I had my book published. And Jim, actually, I would catch the bus up and beat with Jim. And he gave me advice on how to get my book deal. And I eventually got it. So I want to uh, make sure I give a shout out to him. Um, what I always say about this very thing, because people always tell me, you're so like, you know, you speak all these languages and you've done this or whatever. And it's, you know, I feel like they're making it seem like I'm special. I'm not special. I, I made it this far because a group of people like nourish me and help me make it to where I'm at. But what I tell individuals, people who may be in a certain space in life, they're rock bottom or in prison or out in the communities, your success, success is relative. Success could be, you could be in a tough neighborhood and you could be dreaming about, I just want to get a, a, a stable job and get married and have my own place and go on vacation to like South America. Like every, you successful, like that's success. That's it doesn't cool. have to be what I want, but I want some crazy stuff like, or whatever. And, and you know, sports cars and traveling. You don't need all that. Like I, I don't need all that. Like, like figure out what success means to you. Um, and, and if that means like being healthy and traveling or anything, just having your family, whatever that is, you have to define it. Don't look at what no one else has. Powerful. Yeah, success is relative. And I think with social media and things that we see, all the highlights of, you know, what everyone's doing, it sometimes it can make people feel like, man, like what I'm not doing enough or what am I doing wrong? But success and I think it's such important, especially for younger people to to know that. Yeah. Right. So that they don't feel some way about their accomplishments or downplay the accomplishments that they have done, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I tell the young people, I lost a young person who was one of my mentees when I was in prison. He passed away a few years ago in Baltimore. He was 27. Um, his name was Tyrell uh, Taylor. I made some paintings about him. Um, he had skin cancer. And um, I went to go see him the day before he died um, to talk to him. Uh, I made him laugh a lot. He was in pain, but I made him laugh the whole time before he passed. I figured that was the best mm -hmm. we could do. Um, but I started to think real hard after that. And it was about like health, like even like just saying, like, I just want to be healthy. I just want to live like a regular life. I, I've met a lot of people that were, were on their deathbeds, uh, family members and friends or people with accidents and stuff. Like even just saying, like, I just want to live a regular life and I just want to be healthy, you know, stuff like that. Like we got to de define success in ways that resonates with ourselves and not with society or America says um, success is. And so that's what I always tell people like, dude, like, nah, nah, like helping your mom out and spending, if I can spend time with my mom, my mom isn't with me now. And it's like, I would consider that success. If I can go to mom's house and eat all her food up on Sunday and then go back to my house, mm -hmm. like if I could do that, like, you know, so. Exactly. But like, Ed, I, I, I like something you said too, which is a lot of people are average or someone might go back to prison. Like we, there's a certain degree of we have to like healthily also embrace failure. Yes. Yeah. Not as a detriment, right? If someone, yeah. you know, uh, who is sober starts using again or starts drinking again, or someone makes a mistake, someone starts selling and goes back, all these different things. Yeah. We all, no one is flawless. If you peel back, we all make mistakes along the way. Sometimes we're penalized for it, sometimes you're not. Um, and, it's really about how we continuously look to improve and work with people, which is which is the biggest thing. I agree, and I, I totally agree. I think about Chris and Jim held to that that crazy, insane standard that like uh, it, it shouldn't be the case. It's more like 
And, and, and Chris, I mean, I'm sure you would say this too. I mean, you've had just wild success, but even within the things you did, I know when you were building the contracting businesses and stuff on the surface, it did a lot of good stuff, but there was a lot of failure, a lot of issues with oh, it yeah. that like, you know, so everyone on the outside sees you just like winning and doing on the set. But I know you were having accounting issues, trying yeah. to figure out how to pay stuff. It's not always what people think it is. So much of your accomplishments is, is been not always like all of the things were like accomplishments in the way people say it's more your determination. Yeah. And I think sometimes people think like, oh, something didn't work. So I failed. It's like, no, a lot of people fail at a lot of things. Um, yeah. It's just about how you go about your day. And so it's like, we almost have to deconstruct like this whole like winning and like attitude about everything. That's that's a good point. And it's, it's one of the things when I've sat down with people that I've met who have become incredibly successful. And I, I talked to them about when I was in business school and they would send us out to these mentors and everyone would tell us the great success stories. And I, and at the time I'm struggling, like people like, I'm not paying you. I pay you when I feel like it, or maybe you got to wait three months to get paid, like all these things. And they did, they didn't tell me about these real life entrepreneurial or like life struggles. And so when, you know, fast forward, when I started sitting down with these folks, you know, they started to resonate. And if you ain't failed a whole bunch of times, like what have you like really been to? You ain't been through like the struggle. And like, that's the real world. Like you go through stuff, you get knocked down, you got to get back up. And I really appreciate when I have conversations with people uh, when they uh, are successful and they say, man, I've went through everything, partnership battles, hostile takeovers. And that's the real world. And I think it's, it's, it's healthy for everyone to accept that, you know, stuff is not going to move in a straight line. And, you know, thing, you're going to have setbacks, but it's like you got to get back up. You got to have the right people around you, the right support system that like when you fail, you can call someone and say, you know, how do I learn from this? What, what should I have done different? What can I put in place so it doesn't happen again? And what's my next move? And then you get back in the game. Exactly. I think that's a great note to end on, Chris. Thank you so much for coming through. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man, we love you. Peace. Peace.